You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. It's been well said, love is blind, but marriage is a real eye-opener. That's true, isn't it? Those of us who are married, we can agree, yes, indeed, marriage is certainly an eye-opener. Well, we have to ask the question, why? I would argue one reason is women and men bring expectations into marriage. Let's take wives, for example. Wives enter into marriage hoping their husbands will change, but they don't. Husbands enter into marriage hoping their wives will never change, and they do. Spoiled expectations. We see expectations dashed to the proverbial rocks, and we begin to wonder, how can we have a marriage that's happy and holy? 1 Peter 3 is going to talk about that. 1 Peter 3 is going to lay out marriage from God's design. Now, let's state the obvious. Not all of us are married. In fact, not only are not all of us married, in the United States, there are more people who are single than married. So those who are married are in the minority. But sometimes we forget that, don't we? The reality is, This sermon is for everyone who's a part of the Crossroads family. And the reason is straightforward. First and foremost, the Bible esteems marriage and godly sexuality. The scriptures emphasize that Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, has a relationship with his bride that is illustrated by the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. So as a Bible church... If the scriptures care about it, we care about it. But there's other reasons that we should hear from God's word in this matter. Marriage, good marriages, bad marriages, or even some of both, have impacted and formed every single person in this worship center. They've affected us. How we think, what we say, what we do. But let's go even further. This sermon that discusses marriage is critical for singles, divorcees, widows, and widowers. Because you never know when you're going to get married or remarried. I've married people in their 80s. You need to be thinking, perhaps God will have me married again one day, or he may have me married for the very first time, regardless Whether you end up being single or married, you need to be able to discuss marriage because marriage is something so important in our culture. And a biblical understanding of marriage is so significant. This sermon is for everyone. But what's interesting about this particular text is the first seven verses deal with wives and husbands, and then there is an additional passage, a subsection that deals with relationships within the body of Christ. So all of us are going to hear from the Lord today in one way or another. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, 
and we'll look at verses 1 through 12. Now, as you're turning there, stop and think about why we should ultimately have the Scriptures as our authority. It's because God is the creator and the sustainer of marriage. He's the divine director of marriage. He gives directions on how we should live married lives, as well as single lives. Now, for a moment, just stop and think. If you come down with the common cold, you immediately look for cold medication. You read the directions of the medication. If you're healthy, you're most likely taking supplements and vitamins. You read the directions on the bottle. Why is it that so many sick marriages and healthy marriages rarely read the directions? The maker of marriage, the designer of marriage, who has given us directions, but yet we spend so little time in the text studying marriage. We're going to do that this morning. And what we're going to find is Peter gives three directions. The first direction is, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, do I have your attention? You're like, what? I feel your pain, even though I'm not a wife. Because I know that submission is typically called in Christian circles the Christian S-word. It's like an expletive to some, particularly to women, because husbands have used this passage and other passages as a hammer to exert their will on their wives. But I will tell you this, the passage I'm preaching is controversial. I'm not going to lie. It would not be controversial if husbands loved their wives. If husbands loved their wives the way God intends, this would be an easy and clear teaching of Scripture. But before I comment on it further, let's see what Peter writes. In verse 1, Peter says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. So we immediately ask, in the same way, what does that tie back to? It ties back to submission commands. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, all of us are to submit to governing authorities. Now, I know many of you loved that sermon I taught. I mean, you just couldn't get enough of it. That was a joke. <laughs> I'm sure some of you enjoyed it. Then there's a command in chapter 2, verse 18 and following to submit to earthly masters or what we would call managers and supervisors at work. Later in 1 Peter chapter 5, the body must submit to spiritual leaders called elders. Submission is something that everyone must do. In this context, wives are commanded to submit. The question is, what does this not mean? What it doesn't mean is that wives cannot be involved in decision-making, that wives cannot strive to persuade their husbands, that wives cannot challenge their husbands when their husbands are involved in sin. Any husband worth his salt sees his wife as his partner in life, in ministry. 
see, submission does not mean, as a wife, that you are less intelligent or you're less spiritual. On the converse, most of the marriages that I know, the wife is mentally, emotionally, and spiritually often stronger than the husband. And yet, the Lord says, I want you to submit to your husband and let him be responsible for ultimately leading the home. The model is this, Jesus Christ. Fully God, submitted to God the Father. So we are following Christ's example. Whether we're wives or whether we're submitting in another area of our lives or ministries. So notice as well in verse 1, wives submit to their own husband. Peter will say this again in verse 5. Not men in general, your own husband. That's so important. Now Peter is going to give us the purpose as to why wives should submit. Second half of verse 1 into verse 2. So that. So the so that is the purpose. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So Peter immediately says, a wife can win her husband through her life, not her lips. It's not that her lips aren't important, but her conduct is more important than her conversation. So in this particular context, 1 Peter 3, you have a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. That tends to be the case. It has been down throughout church history. It remains the case in the 21st century. But this is just illustrative. If you today are a believing husband and your wife is an unbeliever, all of this is helpful in practice for you as well. If you are a spouse who is married to someone who is a true believer or someone who assumes he or she is a believer but is not acting like a believer, this passage is applicable to you as well. So don't just read it as, well, I don't have an unsaved husband, so what good is this passage? That's not what Peter is saying. He's using an illustration, and he wants us to apply it to our own individual marriages. Peter says in verse 1 that it is a wife's behavior. He brings up a wife's behavior again in verse 2. He says, her chaste or her pure and respectful or reverential behavior. Understand first and foremost that submission is first and foremost directed towards fearing God. So when you read this word respectful, or reverence in verse 2, Peter uses this term, which literally means in fear. When he uses the term fear, it's we're responsible to fear God first and foremost. Out of the overflow of our fear of God comes the ability to respect and submit to our husbands. That is so important. Submission is first and foremost about God and then about people in our lives. Peter says our behavior will win the day. Says it in verse 1, says it in verse 2. Go back in your mind or in the text to chapter 2, verse 12. If you recall, I said chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 may be the thesis 
for the entire letter of 1 Peter. Everything is run through those verses. Verse 12 says that our behavior as the Christian church can impact the nations of the world. It's not that our preaching, our teaching, our counseling, and our witnessing are not important. But now more so than ever in the 21st century, the American evangelical church needs to exude and exhibit godly behavior because we've lost the platform. We've lost the pulpit. We've got to live it because the world doesn't have ears to hear necessarily right now. Peter also talks about the fact that the world observes us. They see us. And this is an unusual Greek term. And guess what? It's only used one other place in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. The very verse that we've been talking about. And you all understand this. You watch the Seahawks. You watch the Mariners. You watch the Huskies. You watch the Cougars. And when you watch, you're observing as a spectator. That's what that term means. When there's a highlight, when there's a close call, I mean, you're locked in. So are unbelieving husbands. They're watching everything that their wives do. And I would argue that's true for believing husbands as well. They're watching everything that their wife does. And they're watching that before they're really listening to what their wife says. If unbelieving husbands can be one without a word, how much more so can believing husbands be impacted by the submissive spirit of their wives? Now let's see what this looks like, practically speaking. Verses 3 and 4 are going to lay this out for us. And what Peter does is, first he gives us external beauty, then he talks about internal beauty. So he moves from behavior to beauty. He starts negatively, if you will, and moves to that which is most positive. Look at verse 3. Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. The term adornment is the word cosmos. It means order or world. We get our English word cosmetics from it. Cosmetics means to order the face. And what Peter is saying is, as important as external cosmetics may be, God doesn't look externally. And by implication, as wives age, your husband isn't going to either. He's going to be paying attention to other qualities. But I think we need to understand this well, because I have been a part of talking to many Christians and even hearing about churches in the course of my lifetime who have said, a woman should not spend time on external beauty. She shouldn't spend time braiding her hair, purchasing gold jewelry, and just dressing to the nines. But here's what's interesting. In the biblical world of the first century, women spent their money on their external beauty. Today, it's a little different. It's houses, cars, vacations. But in the first century, women would spend their wealth on looking good. It was their priority. 
And Peter is saying, don't make that your priority. But here's what's important. He's not forbidding braiding the hair or wearing makeup or anything else that has to do with external beauty. And this is very, very important. Those that say that, they run amok because the third issue is women putting on dresses. And I think every Christian that I've ever heard discuss this passage believes that women should wear clothes. I mean, you could prove me wrong, perhaps, but any godly Christian believes that a woman should be clothed. And so if a woman should be clothed, Peter is saying, don't make external beauty your priority. That's all he's saying. He wants you, ladies, to look beautiful. He's just saying that should not be your ultimate pursuit. Now, in verse 4, he speaks positively. But let it, in other words, your beauty, let your beauty be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So here, Peter talks about a woman's inner beauty being more important than her outer beauty. He talks about the hidden person of the heart. Hidden. No one can see it, per se, at least not initially. Spirit, that which is internal, a gentle and quiet spirit. He lays it out for us that that's what God esteems is precious in his sight. It's valuable in his sight. Therefore, it should be in the lives of husbands. It should be in the lives of church men and church women. The term imperishable is used in 1 Peter 1. It's used of the eternal inheritance in verse 4. It's used of being born again in verse 23. So what Peter is saying is, in the same way that you have an eternal inheritance and you've been born again, that's imperishable. So is your inner beauty. It's eternal. It'll never fade away. No sickness. No amount of wrinkles. No amount of cellulite. Nothing can change that. And Christian women get more beautiful as they age, not less beautiful. They go through trials. They go through suffering. They go through hardship. They love their husband. They love their children and their grandchildren. They're committed to their church. They become more beautiful. And as husbands, that's what we need to esteem. We need to prioritize to our wife. You're more beautiful because of what I see in you. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't say they're beautiful externally as well. But if you only talk about outer beauty, which is fading, what is your wife going to want to esteem? And here's the other problem. We live in a culture that is so big in social media and working out, and cosmetic surgery, and every possible product to beautify people and keep people from aging that are young people, and even those who are seasoned in the church, they feel like they can't compare, they can't compete, and even their own husbands don't find them attractive. And that can just wreck women, and it's wrecking a next generation of women. We've got to change this mentality and mindset. 
Instead of being so visually stimulated, we need to be spiritually stimulated and say, God, help us as a church, help me as an individual to prioritize inner beauty over external beauty. Now, we need to touch quickly upon what it is to have a gentle and quiet spirit because this has been misunderstood for years. It's even been abused. Gentle is used three times in the New Testament. The first time, Jesus refers to those who are meek or gentle in the Sermon on the Mount. That's referring to men and women. The next two uses, Matthew 11, verse 29, Matthew 21, verse 5, they refer to Jesus Christ. They don't refer to women. They refer to Jesus. That means it's relevant to everyone in this worship center. What about the word quiet? Men have used that term to try to silence women and to shut them down. It's only used once in the New Testament, this particular Greek term. It's used in 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, where all of God's people are to pray for governing authorities. How do you like that? And the governing authorities are then to be saved so that we can then honor the Lord by living tranquil and silent lives. All God's people, not just women. But it gets better. There's only one use of the term quiet in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Isaiah 66, verse 2. But to this one I will look, God says, to him, or to her, who is humble and contrite, or silent in heart, and who trembles at my word. One of the greatest verses in the Bible. And it's not referring merely to women, it's referring to men as well. Here's the point. This is not a hammer for women, gentlemen, husbands, this is for everyone in this worship center. We should all have gentle and quiet spirit. Here, it's referring to wives. As the greatest way to win an unbelieving husband or to win over a believing husband. And I'm looking at women in this worship center who model this. Please understand, this has nothing to do with how much you talk with how strong your temperament is, with whether or not you work outside the home, with whether or not you've been given gifts of leadership. My wife, for my money, is as strong of a woman as I've ever met. And she's Scottish on top of that. I mean, I don't mess with my wife. I lead, but she is strong. Yet she's submissive. And she has a gentle and quiet spirit. And her hidden heart is beautiful, even more beautiful than her external beauty. Ladies, whether you're young, whether you're more seasoned, you can be strong. You can lead in the workforce. You can lead along with your husband. But please understand how to submit, how to respect him, how to honor him, and how to ultimately say, I've done everything I can do. I've spoken into your life. I have prayed for you, but at the end of the day, God holds you responsible for this marriage. I'm going to let you make that final decision. You can have a gentle and quiet spirit and be a strong woman. 
Verses 5 and 6 are going to explain how wives can submit and how they can exude a gentle and quiet spirit. For in this way, in former times, that's referring back to the Old Testament, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Did you see that play on words? It's our word adorn once again. Not external cosmetics, internal cosmetics. A gentle and quiet spirit, a submissive spirit. That's what these women of old who were holy modeled. And I would point out as well, all of our English versions rightly translate this term not as wives but as women. Now, yes, it includes that most women, by way of assumption, are married in the first century world. But the translation women demonstrates that there were women in the Old Testament like Ruth who were submissive and who modeled a gentle and quiet spirit. So whether you're single or married, this is for you. You can model what it means to be submissive and gentle and quiet in spirit. Notice, they used to adorn themselves with godly behavior, being submissive to their own husbands. Then Peter calls up an example from these holy women, Sarah. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. I love that. Sarah called Abraham Lord. Now, I've tried to do that with Lori multiple times in the course of our marriage. Call me Lord, baby. <laughs> but that hasn't gone over as well as I would like. Now, I'm kidding, but this is a title of respect. It's a title of honor. And I want you to understand the Old Testament backdrop. It's Genesis 18, and it's the only time Sarah was said to have called Abraham Lord. And guess when it was? At the lowest point in her life. She has failed. She has set Abraham up in Genesis 16 with her maidservant. He had a relationship and had a child from that relationship because Sarah was trying to help God out. And then she's realizing, my husband and I, we're not really able to be intimate anymore like we once were. I mean, my Lord having pleasure. <laughs> I mean, she's laughing. She's laughing, and it's internal. No one's looking. No one's hearing. And Sarah calls Abraham Lord. Wives, how often have you been critical of your husband privately in your home? to your children? How many times publicly when you're hanging out with your girlfriends and they're going off on their husbands, do you join in? Have you just railed on your husband? That goes against everything that this text lays out. It will impact your friends, your children, perhaps your grandchildren. Abraham was a difficult man to submit to. He made all kinds of mistakes. And so did Sarah. And yet, Peter can say, but Sarah's life was characterized by submitting to her husband and by honoring him. Your life can be too. No matter how many mistakes you've made with your husband, with your children, with your grandchildren, in how you've respected your husband, you can start today. You can begin to speak well of him. You can give him his rightful place as the leader of the home. 
In verse 6, you can see that women who follow in Sarah's example, they become her children. This is referring to conversion first and foremost, that Abraham and Sarah were our spiritual ancestors, the forefathers of our faith. But it's also referring to following in Sarah's example. And what Peter says is, ultimately, you can do right without being frightened by any fear. And he uses a term that's only used here in the New Testament that can be translated terror. Because when you submit to your husband, when you go all in, that's terrifying. I mean, what if my husband loses his job? What if he spends money frivolously? What if he doesn't love me the way I need to be loved? What if he doesn't invest in our children the way he should? What if he's not the spiritual leader of our home? Do I need to submit to him? You start going through all the wreckage of the relationship, all the potential wreckage, and you can be overwhelmed with fear. And Peter would say, no, if your fear is ultimately in God, and if you fear God himself, he will provide for you. He will cover you. There may be rough waters, but your Savior and Lord will walk you through those difficult times. Now, just very quickly, this verse has also been misused and abused. It's been used to support staying in marriages where there's spousal abuse. You just can't be frightened by any fear. You have to be a punching bag for your husband. It would be a terrible witness if you separated from your husband. I want to be very clear. The Bible forbids any man from even raising a hand to a woman, much less pushing or striking a woman or children. Psalm chapter 11, verse 5 is clear. God hates those who love and do violence. If you have experienced abuse or are experiencing abuse, don't feel it's the spiritual thing to stay. Separate for a season. Let God work in your husband's life. Let him get professional counseling. Protect yourself, protect your children. This is what the Lord would have you do. We cannot allow men to take texts of Scripture and preach them to their wives or use them in the church to say things that the Scriptures don't teach. Ladies, you deserve to be nurtured, cherished, and honored. And that's what Peter is going to say in verse 7. So our first direction is wives submit to your husbands. The second direction is husbands honor your wives. Husbands ought to love their wives in a way that is astonishing, that blows people away, because it is the second most important relationship in our lives, husbands, apart from Christ. Listen to Peter's words. You husbands in the same way. What do you mean in the same way? This is slightly different. In the same way goes back to chapter 2, verses 21 through 25 where Jesus Christ is the example, and we are to follow in his footsteps, and we are to deny ourselves and sacrifice even our very lives, if necessary, in this context, for our wives. See, many husbands like to brag about being rough and tumble, manly men. I take a bullet for my wife. 
and yet they struggle to live one day of their lives for their wife. Anyone can die in a moment of courage. Few husbands can die to self daily. Look what Peter says. You husbands, likewise, or in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Living with your wives literally means making house, being a homemaker, physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, spiritually. Living with your wives in an understanding way is living with your wives according to knowledge. That's the literal rendering. What that means is you should not know sports, work, or your hobby more than you know your wife. If God has given you the privilege and the pleasure of being married and you're not a student of your wife, you're neglecting the most important ministry in your life. I personally would rather ensure that your marriage is right before God than you are serving Crossroads Bible Church in multiple capacities. There is no greater ministry than your marriage. Live with your wives according to knowledge. And notice, as with someone weaker. This can refer to physical weakness. That's the predominant view. In other words, that men have more physical strength and muscle mass than the typical woman. There are exceptions, mind you. I've told my boys, do not marry a woman who can beat you in arm wrestling. <laughs> now, my daughter-in-law is a power lifter, as is my daughter. So I am all about woman power. Do not get me wrong. But I think a woman needs some security along the way. I think she needs a man who is at least striving to exert strength. It certainly can refer to physical strength and weakness between the wife and the husband. Some would say it's socially weak, that women in the first century were not treated with the respect and the honor that men were. Well, we could make that same argument in the 21st century, that women have not been paid what they should be paid. They should be paid what men are in many cases, and they should be honored and respected as men are, but they're not. These are helpful insights, but I don't think it's the primary issue in play. Contextually, I think it's referring to the emotional makeup of a woman. There are differences between men and women. I call men hard-boiled eggs and women soft-boiled eggs. Men are insensitive, oblivious, and arrogant, generally speaking. Women are sensitive, tender, and compassionate. And so when men interact with women like they're hard-boiled eggs, it creates all kinds of friction and problems. We should be treating them in a way that's nurturing, caring, compassionate, as if they are soft-boiled eggs, for lack of a illustra better illustration. And we should be compassionate, tender, sensitive towards them. Now look with me at how Peter continues his argument. He says, you need to treat your wife, and I would argue women in general, as those 
who are worthy of honor. As a fellow heir of the grace of life, in other words, a sister of Christ, that that eternal relationship is more important even than the marital relationship, which will go away. We're fellow heirs. We both have the grace of life. And then Peter drops this whammy on us. He says to husbands, so that purpose, your prayers will not be hindered, literally to strike or to cut off. If you're not in fellowship with your wife, your prayers, they're bouncing off the ceiling. God can hear them. He's not going to respond to them. And this is one of the scariest verses in Scripture for me personally, because as one who wants to pray, as one who is asked to pray on a daily basis, if I am not right with my wife, God says, get up off your knees. Why are you praying to me when you have neglected my daughter? When you have dishonored her, you've disrespected her, you haven't loved her or cherished her the way you should. Guys, this is serious business. Because you may not feel it at this moment, but what you're going to need more than anything in this world is to have a dynamic prayer life. And if your relationship with your spouse is adversely affecting that, you need to do whatever it takes to get right. And I would suggest <laughs> dropping to your knees this afternoon and saying, honey, I've dishonored you. I've disrespected you. I haven't loved you the way that I should. I've been a horrible witness to our kids and even to our grandkids, to our neighbors, to people who know us from work and church. Would you forgive me? Please forgive me. In my experience, most wives will. They're just hoping that we will own our junk and our sin. And by the way, it's not a one-time act. It's a daily dying to self, asking our wife to forgive us for insensitive words, for neglect, for a lack of love, for a lack of appreciation, for a lack of leadership. Now, I'll be the first to admit I fail on a daily basis. I'm not hammering you. I'm hammering myself. But there are times when we as men, we need to earn some spiritual chest hair. We need to man up and own our sin and get right with our spouse. You have the opportunity to do that. We have a fight night coming up with Les and Leslie Parrott. Our church is bringing in people who are going to help us to grow in our marriage. So if you're not signed up, sign up so you can be a part of this and you can begin to work on your marriage. So we've seen the directions. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, honor your wives. Now Peter concludes with a summary for this passage, but everything that he has said thus far, particularly in chapter 2, verse 13, through 3, verse 7. Listen to these words, beginning in verse 8. To sum up, or finally, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Can you imagine if we just took this verse and applied it during COVID? That the body of Christ interacted the way these five adjectives say we should? That we would think and that we would feel in a way that honors God. These are thinking and feeling terms. And then they lead to words and actions in verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult 
for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Make sure you hear this. In your relationships as wives and husbands, as parents and grandparents, as singles, as divorcees, as widows and widowers, as teens and college students, you all want a happy life. I want a happy life. Peter says, do you want to inherit a blessing? You can inherit a blessing when you are harmonious in your relationship with the local church and with those who are your enemies, both in the local church and in the community. And you can inherit a blessing by honoring God as he suggests. Verses 10 through 12 are an Old Testament quotation and illustration from Psalm 34. Listen to these words. For, Peter's going to explain himself, the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. In other words, pursue peace in his relationship with other believers and unbelievers outside of the church walls. Now get ready for this. I'm glad you're sitting down. This is brutal. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Yes! And his ears attend to their prayer. Yes! But. Don't you just hate but? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that includes Christians like you and me. If we are choosing to dishonor our wives, verse 7 says our prayers are hindered. Verse 12 says, whoever you are, God turns his face away from you if you're doing evil. And doing evil is something that all of us can be guilty of. And we want God's face to turn toward us. We want to ensure that we're walking with him and that we're enjoying him. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But if we're righteous... The eyes of the Lord are toward us and his ears attend to our cry. Here is the sermon in a sentence. God blesses those who show honor. There it is. God blesses those who show honor as husbands, as wives, as Christians. It doesn't matter your age, your stage. God will bless you spiritually if you show those in your life honor. He may not bless you physically, mentally, emotionally, and most likely he won't bless you financially. He'll bless you spiritually. And that's what you want more than anything. Because everything else fades and everything else is fleeting. God blesses those who show honor. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we set our hearts for communion. Lord, convict us of relationship woes that need to be dealt with before we participate in your supper. Lord, thank you that you died on the cross and you rose from the dead for those who have sinned, for those who are spiritual failures like me. Thank you that your cross allows us access to you. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And Lord, we pray for those who are restless, 
who feel hopeless, who haven't necessarily trusted in Christ, may they trust in you today. May they find eternal life by just acknowledging their sin and turning to the Savior. And for those of us who need to confess to others, Lord, may we do business with you and with your people and those unbelievers we've sinned against this afternoon or this week. Humble our hearts, prostrate our souls. For Jesus' sake and glory, amen.